It is good to be with you, Sanctuary. This is, I hope you realize this, uh, that Sanctuary is a pretty, a pretty special place, a pretty unique place. Um, in the city of Tulsa, I think we're a kind of uh, interesting community for a place like Tulsa, but I think that's good. I think uh, this, is, this is part of what, uh, what Peter calls a peculiar kind of people. And so uh, <laughs> if you're here today and you think, this feels a little strange, yes, it should feel a little strange. We're a peculiar kind of people living in a peculiar kind of place, but it's always good to be with you and to worship with you. If I'm uh, a, a little scattered today, we've had some strange things going on at home. Last night, my wife asked our three-year-old, whose name is Rowan, after my friend, Rowan Williams. Um, she said, who is God? And I was sitting at my desk, punching out some notes for today, and he just looks at her and then points a finger to me. <laughs> and so a number of follow-up questions come after that kind of event, and we kind of get to the bottom of why he's convinced that me, as his father, is God. And it actually comes down to our prayer practice, that every night before bed, I tuck in next to Rowan, I ask him if he wants to pray, and then I lead him in a prayer that starts, our father. <laughs> Not realizing that all this time, Rowan has been thinking that like, you are my father, and these prayers are going to you. <laughs> So I need to have some conversations with our own Pastor Shelby after service about what we're teaching our kids back in the kids' classes. And then as if like that wasn't enough to kind of derail the evening, um, this morning he wakes me up and he goes, there's a frog. And if you know anything about three-year-olds, you know they're, they're liars. <laughs> and so I said, there's not a frog. Like, you've just found a toy or a stuffed animal or something, like, he's got a sense of urgency, like there's a frog and it's behind the couch and it's jumping and sticking to the wall. And I actually said out loud as I'm getting up, so help me God if there's not a real frog in this house. <laughs> and sure enough, I turned down the hallway and sitting right there on the floor staring me in the face is a big frog. <laughs> So that was our morning. So again, if I'm a little scattered coming into this space, it's been an interesting like 12 hours for us at the Paino House. This story of the Good Samaritan, I think one of the dangers of a text like this is it's something that we're so familiar with, that we've heard over and over and over again to the point where our, our proximity to it kind of blinds us to what is really happening. Who is my neighbor is the question that Jesus is asked by this lawyer, by this, by this religious scholar, right? This person who's trying to catch Jesus in some kind of trap. And of course, it's frustrating that Jesus doesn't just give a clearer answer. Like, it'd be so much nicer if Jesus just says, who is your neighbor? Well, everyone is your neighbor, and everybody is your neighbor, and so you should love everyone and everybody. Just put a bow on it. Make it neat, make it tidy, and just leave it alone. 
Part of the reason, Rowan Williams says, part of the reason that this is a, it's a story, the story of the Good Samaritan is frustrating. Because in response to this question, Jesus tells them that this is not just about who we are supposed to love. Again, that would be neat, that would be tidy. Everybody, everywhere. But it's not just about who do we love. It's about how do we become lovable. That this is a story about how we recognize our lives as being bound up with the actions and the being of a stranger, of someone that we don't know, of someone we don't have any connection with. How do we start to see them in ways that not only connects us to them, but actually draws us into responsibility for them, and we see ourselves as being taken care of, that they are responsible for us in some way. One of the challenges, again, of this story is, is both our, our distance and our proximity, not just that it's so familiar and that we've come against this story time and time and time again, but also our, our distance through time, our distance through geography. And our proximity, our familiarity with this story is so frustrating because, of course, this idea of the Good Samaritan has worked its way into our culture, into our vernacular. It's a word or a phrase that we use to describe the kind of people who they care for the needs of someone else, right? I think it's in the 17th century, the very first time that the definition, the dictionary definition of Samaritan is the one who does good for a stranger. And so this is our understanding. This is our takeaway of what is a good Samaritan. It's someone who does good. It's someone who does a charitable act. It's someone who, who does something selfless for someone they do not know. But we also kind of use it as a, as a rhetorical whip, right? There was a story, gosh, it's been about six years ago, of a gunman who walked into a church and started shooting and there was another person in the congregation who had a gun and shot the shooter. And every news network ran the same story, that it was a good Samaritan who stood up with the gun and shot the gunman. We have a pretty warped idea of what a Samaritan is when we can take a tragedy like that and label the person who does the unspeakable thing and say they were a good Samaritan. And so we use this to kind of draw some boundaries, to draw some political lines even. We have organizations that name themselves after the Samaritan as a way of marking themselves out as doing good in the world. But this, this is how Jesus' parables and Jesus' stories always tend to work. That as soon as we think we got the point, and then we use that point against our perceived enemies to beat them with it like a stick, of course, it's gonna splinter back on us. That that stick that we think, this point that we think is the right idea, as soon as we try to use it against somebody else, it's gonna break and splinter back on us and cause us to rethink the whole thing all over again. That's something of what's happening with this story of the Good Samaritan. And it's something that happens to the hearers of this story in Jesus' time. This is some of the distance that we do have to cover. 
So they're listening to Jesus. They're hearing about the priest, hearing about the Levite passing on the other side of the road. And for these people, it felt like a kind of vindication. I mean, think about the, the political landscape of the time, that the Romans have moved in, they've, they've usurped all of the power and all of the control, and what has happened to the priests, to the Levites, is this kind of buddying up against the powers that be, a way of, of kind of protecting themselves. And so even their function in a society becomes very legalistic, becomes very fundamentalist, that the bars that you have to cross in order to be the right kind of person become higher and higher and higher. And so for them, there's this kind of rage against the machine, right, of the, of the elites who had nestled up close to the Roman powers of, of these people who had made life with God more about rules and moralism than about seeing the world in a kind of way that leads to holiness. Seeing the pain and the suffering of the world and then doing something about it. But for them, for the hearers of Jesus' story in Jesus' time, the logical third person to come down that road after the priest, after the Levite, the hero of this story is expected to be an ordinary, everyday Jewish person. Somebody who sees the need, loves their neighbor, and thus fulfills the law of loving God and loving neighbor. It's a way of saying the people who have been in charge, the people who are in power, they've gotten all of this loving God and loving neighbor business wrong. And so let an ordinary, everyday Jewish person come down the road and show them who's got it right. These are stories that we hear over and over and over again in our movies and in our television and in, in the books that we read that we love that the people who are supposed to be in charge and getting it all right get it wrong and that it's the ordinary, average, everyday Joe who can come in and, and get it all right. What they don't expect, what we shouldn't expect, is that the good neighbor is the very person they've worked so hard to not be neighborly to. Samaritans, geographically, they're simply people who live in the hill country between Galilee and Judea. It's just a geographic location. And then as time goes on, this is before the people of God end up in exile. The Judeans talk about their northern neighbors, the Samaritans, as people who are like us, but not quite. They're just, a, they're just a little different, but they're still one of us. They're just kind of like a strange cousin. That they worship the same God that we worship and they practice the same kind of things that we practice, but they just think about things a little differently. They just worship a little bit differently. And then that narrative continues to kind of spin out so that post-exile, they're seen as the wrong sort. They're seen as the people who had mixed with the wrong kind of people, that they do the wrong kinds of worship, they have the wrong kind of theology, they have the wrong kind of behavior, they worship on a different mountain than the mountain that we worship on. And so there's this progression of othering the Samaritan people, from our northern neighbors, the people who are kind of like us, but not entirely like us, to the people who have all the wrong ideas, who worship in all the wrong ways, believe all the wrong things. So in the Jewish mind, the idea of the Samaritan is not just a stranger. 
And I think this is how we've heard this story over time, is that here is somebody that you have no relation to, that it is an utter stranger, someone who is utterly unknown by you and utterly you are unknown by them, that there's this kind of chasm. But the reality is it's not just somebody that you don't know. It's someone who used to be one of us. It's someone who we used to know. Someone who used to think like us, someone who used to believe like us, someone who used to worship like us and look like us. It's a deeper kind of cut. It's a deeper kind of wound that they're having to recover from. Not just from utter otherliness, but from somebody who was once close and who has now been separated from us. That person is not supposed to be the hero of this story because we know that they're wrong. So when Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor? He's not just saying those people you rejected are in fact your neighbor. He's saying you are their neighbor. Can you see yourself rightly in relation to the person that you have othered? The person that you have separated yourself from. This isn't just about how to love. This is about how to receive love from the people that you are sure are not loving. How do we get there? Part of what Jesus is suggesting is that compassion wins out over and against correctness. The priests they're the ones who are doing it correctly. So we shouldn't place too much blame on the priest, on the Levite for passing by on the other side. It wasn't simply that they couldn't be bothered, that they were just too busy, or that they didn't want to care for that person. But in the Jewish purity laws, one of the worst, most impure things you could do was to touch a dead body so that they can get back to their function of serving the people of God in their vocation. This is the correct thing to do. But again, Jesus is saying that oftentimes compassion wins out over doing the correct thing. They choose to obey this, this superficial law. They're keeping their ritual purity as opposed to obeying the deeper point of the law that is to love your neighbor. They defaulted to the, the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law, rather than be pressed into holiness by seeing the one on the side of the road as one in need, rather than one who might make them unclean. Brother Ramon, he's a Franciscan monk, died in 2000. Uh, Bishop Mike Owen, who some of you know, sent me this quote yesterday, timely. It says from Brother Ramon, do we sometimes have to be theologically wrong in order to be pastorally right? Or is it that pastoral discernment is governed by compassion, not sentimentality, and leads us to understand our theology? What's he suggesting? that oftentimes we use our systems and our structures and our understanding of theology to give us the framework for how we go about living in the world, 
thinking that all of our encounters and all of our experiences need to fit within a kind of framework so that we act appropriately, so that we do the correct thing, rather than just living with our hearts out in front of us, rather than having compassion on people who are in pain, people who are suffering, and people who are in need, and letting that kind of compassion inform and form our theology. We use our theology to make sense of our compassion rather than the other way around. One of the best examples of this, and it's silly, is Mr. Rogers. For those of you in the room who don't know who Mr. Rogers is, uh, he had a pretty popular TV show, ran for a little over 30 years, like 900 episodes, called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And what was so shocking about Mr. Rogers is that this was a children's program. This is programming for our kids. But he was constantly pushing the envelope on what is correct to do with our kids in order to make them become more compassionate people. A couple examples of this. One, uh, you remember the Wizard of Oz movie and there's the Wicked Witch of the West. And the actress who played the Wicked Witch of the West was Margaret Hamilton. And there was this kind of conversation, this current in the culture that children were afraid of this movie because they were afraid of the witch. They think she's a real person. They think that these kinds of people really exist. And so one of the things Mr. Rogers does is he brings Margaret Hamilton onto his TV show. And just in like ordinary plain dress, right? Street clothes. And then while she's on the show, he has her get dressed up as the witch to show these children there's nothing to be afraid of. This is all just pretend. This is all just for the magic of the movie. You don't have to be afraid of this. Another example was in 1968, I believe, when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. And there was a lot of fear There were a lot of questions, a lot of pain in that moment. And again, this is children's television. And Mr. Rogers spends an entire episode talking about this event of the assassination. And he lets these kids ask questions. He lets them name what it is that they're afraid of. You know, what if this happens to me? Should I not go out in public? Should we not go to the grocery store? all these kinds of questions. He's just making space so that they can learn to become more compassionate people. Was it correct? None of us would ever do this. (laughs) None of us would ever say, hey, we've got a kid's TV program. We want to spend the next 30 minutes talking about assassinations. But again, there's something right about it. And I think if nothing else for Sanctuary... If we do, if there's no other project, if there's no other kind of experiment that we're a part of as a community, I want us to become a more compassionate community. Even if it looks like, well, is that the correct thing to do? I don't know. But I think we should maybe live with our hearts out in front of us and let it inform our theology rather than trying to press our theology onto how we're compassionate in the world. Let's just be compassionate people, no matter This is a line from Bishop Ed, no matter who it associates us with or separates us from, can we choose to be compassionate? Jesus turns this question, who is my neighbor 
He turns it back on us. A neighbor, it turns out, it isn't someone sitting over there. It's not someone passively waiting for us to be good to him or to her. You are the neighbor. I am the neighbor. We are already involved in the lives of other people. We are already moving towards someone else all the time. To be a neighbor, which we all are, isn't to be passive. It's a kind of active posture in the world. Part of what Jesus is showing us in this story is the ways in which our lives are already intricately intertwined with the lives of those around us. It's not a matter of deciding who out there deserves to be loved by you. It's a question of your decision to be a neighbor, your decision to be someone who offers life to other people, your decision to live your life in a way that's life-giving to others. That's the decision that has to be made. So to see this from another angle, to love your neighbor is not just to love people in need so that we become the heroes of the story. That's not the point. To love our neighbor is to love the person who can save our lives. The catch in this parable is that we, we never know quite who that person is. We never know quite exactly who's gonna come walking down the road. It's to be able to see ourselves as the one in the ditch who is in need of healing. And can we accept it, even from the people that we're not so sure are our neighbors? And in fact, the person who comes walking down the road, the person who's going to respond in compassion, oftentimes is likely to be the most improbable person around. So our openness to neighborliness has to be a, a kind of profound, all-encompassing, all-embracing thing. This isn't sentimental. This isn't about a kind of universal benevolence or just saying, the whole world is my friend. It's not that. This is about recognizing our God-given calling to be life-giving force in the world, to be to others the surprising stranger who brings them alive. And the outcome of this is that we must expect to be brought alive by surprising strangers in our own lives. The reality is that our human life is constantly receiving messages about who we are from those around us and in turn, giving our life that other people might be brought into the fullness of who they're supposed to be. And as good and as right and hopeful as that sounds, the consequences of that reality aren't always what we wish them to be. Rowan Williams says this about this topic. He says, in our human lives, we are related, always and already, in ways that we never chose and never planned. We are embarrassingly bound up in the life of everybody else around us. We would much rather not be affected by the embarrassing failures of the human race at large, but we are bound in already. <laughs> What he's suggesting is that if we decide to be a neighbor and if we decide to receive the neighborliness of others, embarking on a style of life that gives life to other people, 
We aren't acting in ways that are foreign to who we are. We're recognizing and we're acting out on the truth that is deepest in us. That we are more connected and our lives are more meshed together than we can ever imagine. So being a neighbor in that sense isn't about a decision to be good or to be nice or to be charitable. It's to make a decision to be who you are. That the the fundamental reality of the world is that we are bound to one another. And so when we decide to do good, when we decide to bind wounds, when we decide to live with compassion, when we decide to be charitable, it's not like something in us has to be transformed. Something in us is just returning to who it is we were already created to be, to becoming yourself in the fullest way possible, in the way that God imagines for you. And if that's true, then conversely, when we create enemies rather than neighbors, that's what's unnatural. That's the unnatural thing in our lives. So when I identify someone as a stranger or as an enemy or as an other, what I'm doing isn't just an act of violence against them, but I'm alienating, alienating some part of my own life. I'm making myself a stranger and an enemy. I'm losing something of who I am. We think we're doing it to them, but we're really doing it to ourselves. We were created to be a life-giving force in the world, not a divisive force. And this is at the heart of holiness, that it's, it's a way of seeing the world. It's a way of living with our eyes wide open because this kind of living requires a deep need to pay attention. At the very heart of the church is this way of living, this image of rejoicing with those who rejoice, of weeping with those who weep, which is a way of saying we ought to see ourselves diminished by the diminishing of others. That we are the ones who suffer because another suffers, and we are the ones who can rejoice because another rejoices. But living that way, again, it requires a deep need to pay attention a close, patient, realistic, loving absorption of the world and who we are and who is our neighbor. It's not enough, though, to come away saying, so this is what we do. Go and be loving, be kind, be generous. We can't land it there because it centers too much our own activity, our own being out in the world. And what we ought to focus on, what we ought to realize is that our ability to be loving, our ability to be kind and to be generous is not just because we choose to be kind and to be loving and to be generous. It's because God is making it so. And so we come back to God's activity in the world over and against our own activity. This is what we bear witness to that in our loving and in our being loved, in our care and being cared for, God is the one who is acting and making that love and care possible for us and for our neighbor. In Hosea chapter six, I'm sure you're all familiar with this passage. 
The prophet testifies of the God who will restore them from this broken state. And again, to think about the people who are hearing Jesus tell this story, these words are echoing in the back of their mind, these words of Hosea 6. It says this, come let us return to the Lord. He will heal us, he will bind up our wounds, he will revive us, and on the third day he will restore us so that we may live in his presence. God is the one in this story who is healing, who is binding up our wounds, who is reviving, and who is restoring us. It's interesting, in in the Middle Ages, these theologians were trying to sort out this whole Good Samaritan story, and they were very quick to say that Jesus is the Samaritan. And how do we know that? And this was the connection that they made, was that he offers the innkeeper two denarii, And they say that the two denarii that Jesus offers them are actually the gospel sacraments. That the gifts that Jesus gives to the innkeeper, who they say is the church, is the gift of baptism and the gift of the Eucharist. That these are the gifts Jesus gives to the church so that we can care for and bind and heal and love those who are in need who need to be restored, who need to be revived. So the Good Samaritan is doing the work of God in this story. He's doing the work of new creation, of healing and binding and reviving. And what Jesus is saying to this lawyer is that he is the Samaritan. He is the unlikely one who carries forward God's healing work of new creation in the world. He is the fullness of the reality of Hosea's prophecy coming true for the world, the one who heals, the one who binds, the one who revives. But we'll have to have eyes to see him and the heart that's able to welcome him. We are the one in need of that neighbor, but we have to be able to recognize him. And Jesus is saying, you have to keep your eyes open, otherwise you'll miss it. Otherwise, those parts of you that need to be healed will never be touched. Those wounds that need to be bound will continue to fester. The places that I want to take you, you're just going to be left in the ditch if you don't have the eyes to see that it's me who is coming to care for you. Jesus, in some way, is not just the Samaritan, but he's also the man in the ditch. Jesus is on this journey to Jerusalem to the cross, and he is about to journey on the exact same road on this story that he tells. He becomes the rejected one. He becomes the one who is both beaten and also rescuing. N.T. Wright says that the parable, redefining neighbor, It doesn't conclude that the man in need was the Samaritan's neighbor, but that the Samaritan was his. The challenge is not just to copy the Samaritan, but to recognize him when he comes to our aid as our neighbor. Jesus puts himself in the place of the outcast. He puts himself in the place of the one who is who is robbed and the one who brings healing. And he asks, can you recognize 
the Samaritan as your neighbor? Can you be a neighbor to the Samaritan? And if you don't have eyes to see that, you might just miss me is the message Jesus gives to them. You may be left for dead if you don't have eyes to recognize me coming to you. And then here the faithful Jewish people listening to this story are hearing Jesus say to them, the ordinary, average, everyday Joes, you're not the hero. You're the one in the ditch and I've come to heal you. Can you accept me? Is the question Jesus asks them. We have to be willing to receive help, to receive healing, to remain open to those people that you are convinced aren't one of you. Because as they come to you, it is Christ himself who is coming to you. And part of that openness is a discernment, a kind of careful attention to what are the needs we're responding to. This is the question of the day. What are the needs that we're responding to? Where is death in our situation? And then ask for eyes and our ears and our hearts to be attuned to God's work in that moment and in that relationship, whatever it is. Can we see the brokenness of the world? Can we acknowledge death where it's present? And do we have the imagination to see where Jesus is coming to us and how Jesus is inviting us to be part of that healing and binding and reviving? This is holiness as a way of seeing the world rightly. Last thing I'll say, and this is, this is your, your practical application, all right? Maybe a little too pragmatic. Oftentimes, we hear a story like this and we think we need to rush to pain and to suffering. We need to be open to it. And there's a level in which that's true. And we should. We shouldn't run away from it. But one of the key parts about this story is that the Samaritan picks up the man, he binds the wounds that he can bind, and then he leaves him. He puts him in the inn. He puts him in the charge of someone else to care for him, to do the kind of work that he can't do. Why? Because he has some place to be. He has his own story that he's living. He has his own journey that he's on. And so while we're, of course, encouraging this deep level of openness, there's also a pitfall here where we get so sucked into the pain of others that suddenly we're too engrossed in it. We're, we're too far into their suffering that now we are people who need to be healed rather than being able to heal. We can only respond from whatever level of health is in us. And so there has to be this balance of we do what we can. We respond to what we can, but we can't respond to everything. Part of the gift and the curse of this present moment is that we have so much information. So we're in tune with what's going on in the world. But if we're not careful, 
all will be in tune with is so much pain and so much suffering and so much brokenness and we're just not wired to hold it all. So we respond to what's right in front of us. We respond to the moment. We respond to the relationship. We respond to that broken thing that's right in front of us. Knowing there's more work to do, but that has to be left to the innkeepers. That has to be left to another Samaritan. And so we have to be people who don't get too wrapped up in the pain and suffering of others so much that it becomes your own pain and suffering because you'll have no life left to give. You'll be the person in the ditch rather than the Samaritan journeying on the road. So guard your hearts while living with your heart out in front of you. If that sounds confusing, everything Jesus tells us to do is confusing. <laughs> and we can only do it by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.